Emotional Cripples is an entertainment podcast which contains frank discussions about mental health. Listener caution is advised. Welcome to Emotional Cripples, a podcast about male mental health. I'm a male, I'm a man, I'm Andrew Lowe, and with me is Tim Tucker. That's me. I'm he's, also male. He's also a man. And so what we thought we'd do was um, talk about male mental health. And we're not, yeah. um, by talking about men's mental health, um, we're not excluding women. You could technically say <laughs> that we are excluding women, but... Technically, yes, but... I, I sort of prefer to think of it as we're focusing on men. Yeah. More than excluding women. So this is episode one, sort of episode zero, really, the pilot. Uh, keep listening and we'll tell you a bit more about who the hell we are and why we're doing this. Yeah, and later on, Andy's going to be talking to somebody who does CBT mm-hmm. or cognitive behavioural... <laughs> cognitive? Ther- Wait a minute. Cognitive behavioural <laughs> therapy. That's the one, isn't it? Yeah. Um, CBT. So um, uh, to see what how that approaches male mental health, um, obviously, in later podcasts, we'll look at other kinds of therapy. Then we're going to be recommending a couple of things. Uh, in this episode, we've got an app that can help with the, the social media noise, dampen down that a little bit. And yeah. a really good book about a writer who suffered severe anxiety and depression and managed to pull himself back from the brink, quite literally, actually, and uh, mm. learned to manage his mental health issues and enjoy life again. And uh, Yeah, and I'm going to reveal how a brush with raving... Yep. It was my first uh, result of uh, being involved with mental health issues. Yeah. Um, when you say a brush with raving... Well, actually, a, a deeply mean... entrenched raving yeah. lifestyle was my first reaction. Mm. I, I, you know, we'll talk more about it later, but that's but yeah, that's my tease. Yeah. It's not a very good tease, really. I kind of, <laughs> I kind of give it all away. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm interested. I'm, in, I'm intrigued. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, and I'm also one, another thing that's going to happen is I'm, I'm going to reveal uh, my own particular happy place. Uh, oh yeah, in in the real world. You told me this one, so I've forgotten what it was. I was trying to tell somebody the other day. Yeah. Well, keep, keep listening. listening. Better keep listening. Yeah, keep listening, <laughs> and uh, you will find out as well as the, yeah. <laughs> the listeners. So before we get started, a uh, quick warning: we are going to be diving into some pretty dark waters. So if you're not feeling up to that. Just switch us off and come back later. Uh, and if you do feel affected by anything we talk about, then please just get it out into the open. You know, talk to someone about it. If there's nobody immediately available, then the Samaritans in the UK and Ireland are there 24 hours. You can reach them on 116123. Or if you're outside the UK and Ireland, we recommend Befrienders, who are affiliated with the Samaritans and they have call centres in 39 countries. Have a look at befrienders.org. We've also listed these details and a few other options in the show notes. And so male mental health has become something that I think over the past maybe two or three years, it's certainly risen to the top of the quite high in the news agenda. Whereas before it was, I think, something that we'll probably keep coming back to, which is we don't talk about that. We don't, we don't know mm. how to talk about it. We're men. It's a bit embarrassing. We're not supposed to talk about it. We're supposed to man up. We're supposed yeah. to be strong. We're supposed to be... Not cry. Yeah, boys don't cry and all of that. We're supposed to be, um, you know, we're supposed to be the sort of custodians of everything. And mm. we, you know, and we just stay strong. And um, But I think that's changed quite a lot. And particularly when you see a lot of um, 
issues of, of male mental health coming into the news based on, sadly, usually based on celebrity suicide. I think that's something. That's been a big one, isn't it? Yeah. But you, when you first came to me with the idea of this podcast and we were talking about it and you mentioned that statistic that mm. the biggest killer of men under 45 is suicide. Mm. That's an amazing statistic. Yeah, and that comes from um, CALM, the Campaign Against Living Miserably, which an uh, amazing organisation that focuses on male mental health and hopefully we'll get them on at some point. Um, that is an important indicator of, amongst many that male mental health is an issue, right? Yeah, that, that's clearly a big problem that mm. and the reason we wanted to do this podcast really is that that's sort of the mystery at the heart of the podcast I think why are so many men you know running out of road like that before they before they get into their really get into middle age properly and start yeah. to you know get into that time where we're both middle-aged where yeah. where you can start to sort of relax a little bit and not worry so much about whether you're listening to the right music or whether you're dressed right whether you <laughs> whether you're dressed sometimes <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so so yeah, you can, yeah. and in a way, I think I'm I'm realizing that middle age is quite a, quite a nice time. Really, it's a comfortable place to be. Yeah. So it's a shame that a lot of men don't quite don't quite make it. You know, it's, it's yeah. a tragedy that they don't. And not not that. I mean, we'll get to talk about our own mental health issues at yeah. some point, and undoubtedly. But it's not that mental health issues go away at that age. But no, maybe no. maybe you're in a position in life where you can deal with it in a different way. Yeah, I think you probably naturally have more more natural support around you maybe or you've you've been more comfortable in your yeah. own skin and you or you understand you've got your coping strategies you've got all these things sorted out uh, yeah. perhaps by then so i suppose so the thing we want to try and explore is what is why is uk culture society psychiatric culture failing failing yeah. all these men why why are they finding it so why, difficult to carry on yeah we're going to look at where you can turn for support and help yeah. And we'll look at various different things that you can turn to and, and not evaluate them, but look at the strengths of each. And, and that might help if, mm. if you're like us, have suffered from mental health issues, that might help <clears> you to see ways that you could maybe look at exploring better ways of coping with it. I think that's a big thing because I, when I, I mean, to go into personal details yet, but when I first recognised that I had mental health issues, I yeah. really, it was really stigmatised. I mean, we're talking yeah. Two thousand, so it's fifteen years ago, right? For me, that I first recognised it. it, probably went pre that, but that even that short amount of time, fifteen years, it was a, mm. it wasn't something I could talk about comfortably with my employers, mm. my employees, rather employers, employees, and um, people I work with, my friends and family. I didn't feel I could. I think right. society's changed a lot since then. Yeah, it feels like it's moved on in the last few years. I still think we're in the <laughs> the foothills, though. Yeah, you know what I mean? exactly. I still, still think we've got go. that. Yeah, we've kind of managed to get there. People mm. recognise it. And they're kind of okay to accept that. I think the, the, the progress has been, you know, generally mental health has kind of got onto the agenda, and people mm. are willing to accept that it is a thing. And now, male mental health has found it sort of used that as a kind of foothold. Yeah. And now has managed to get itself into the into the uh, higher profile. And whereas before it was more, as I said before, it's like you know, man up, get on with yeah, it. Yeah, you know? that's right. I think there's a generational thing. Cheer up. Of, it's a big, yeah, cheer up, yeah. And um, see, I mean, we'll, come, we'll probably come back to this when I talk about myself. But I really remember in my late teens, somebody, somebody quite close to me said, "What have you got to be depressed about?" Yeah. When I was depressed, and so and I, I still hear that actually. So not yeah. about me, but when I when I hear people talking about other depressed people, yeah, even if they're not celebrities, even if they're just people that they know, yeah. they'll say, "Why." I don't see what they've got to be depressed about. So yeah. there's still a long way to go for a full understanding of... of yeah, yeah. There's not much going on in the media about it. I mean, there's the odd book, which we'll recommend. Yeah. Um, 
whatever we find that we think addresses it. But it's still, like you say, the foothills. It's still still a long way for it being something that people can frankly and openly talk about. Yeah, because it's so misunderstood, I think. And the, mm. because it hasn't been talked about for so long, it's not like, oh, we suddenly understand it all. No. It's, it's out, so it's time to begin trying to understand it. And I think yeah. it's... So you shouldn't... You shouldn't be sort of really, particularly generationally, thinking about people who find it difficult to understand and and judging yeah. them for that and saying, you know, dismissing them. I think it's all about the education process of letting them. Yeah. Because what I mean, my dad would, uh, if you said someone's depressed, my dad would probably think, uh, okay, they're they're just sad about something. Yeah. You know, the, the, the guttering is broken. And That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They'll be right <laughs> when, it, when it's fixed. Yeah. yeah. But, <laughs> Sort of, or they, you know, they're kind of um, their favourite TV show is, is been cancelled. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's and that's something, and you go, oh, I'm so depressed about that, and that's quite, you know, idiomatically, that's true, isn't it? That's yeah. just something that you generally say. Mm. But depression is more. We'll talk about this a lot, obviously. But depression is more of an existential problem than a yeah. Than a, it's a bad word for it, actually, isn't it? It is, yeah, yeah. It, it's misleading yeah. because you can use that word in other contexts and it means something completely different. Yeah, and I think. It's it's been seen as quite a frivolous thing. I'm listening mm. to the Smiths. I'm, I'm so depressed, and so we're going to try, mm. without being too lofty about it, to try and educate a little bit, maybe, and just say yeah. this is what share this is our what experiences. It is. This is what it feels like, I think, and hopefully that will resonate with people who are listening if they are feeling the same. Or maybe we might even, you know, we're going to set up presumably. I don't know. Yeah, we might set up a Twitter account or something, uh, yeah, um, or an email or whatever. Well, we let's do. leave that. Let's not worry about social media. It's fine. Yeah, maybe that would be a mistake. No, what I mean yeah. is people can maybe get in touch and talk about their experiences. We'd be happy to hear those. Um, yeah. Now, I, I must think... say, cats might come in. Yes, point. okay. Yeah. So there are none in at the moment. In, we'll probably edit them out. But yeah. um, they might. And that one. is weird. That's a cat. How did that happen? Yeah, because I heard the cat flap. Oh, yeah. I see. And usually <laughs> my, one of my cats... We'll do Jenny, that soon afterwards. We'll yeah. hear people speaking and they'll want to get involved. That was so weird. That was so, so he weird. will come in and go, uh, can I contribute to this discussion about my mental health? You know we'll go, so no, well. you're a cat. <laughs> Fuck off. So he might, um, he might come in. Right, there will, well, also, there'll be, as you just heard, I've used some choice language there. That's not to be cool. That's just naturally the way I speak. So yeah, we're going to yeah. try and be natural. Yeah. One thing we're going to try and do is be totally honest. I love and, it. He's and be really... ourselves and be honest. We're not going yeah. to be sort of just saying motherfucking every other word or whatever. But no. we will be ourselves and we're going to try and be honest about the way we're feeling. And we're not going to try and put too much of a front up there. So a quick word on the title. Um, emotional cripples. The phrase comes from a woman called Valerie Solanas who was became acquainted with Andy Warhol in the in the mid-60s in the factory in New York. And uh, she was like a writer, playwright. She was later diagnosed uh, with paranoid schizophrenia. And again, we'll come back to labels, we'll come back to all of that later. But at the time, you know, somebody who behaved the way she did, she would have clearly just been dismissed as mental or crazy or psycho or whatever. Yeah. And um, Difficult. Difficult. Difficult woman. Yeah, all those things. She gave Andy Warhol a play, she wrote, uh, a play was called Up Your Ass, which, uh, as far as I'm aware, hasn't been recommissioned by CBBC recently. <laughs> um, I assume it's quite pornographic. I've never, <laughs> I've never seen that even advertised anywhere, no. Yeah, so <laughs> and Andy Warhol had a look at that and decided he wasn't going to put it on. And so she got it into her head that he was suppressing her work and she she became she had quite a radical feminist viewpoint, and she founded, or you know, self proclaimed to be the founder of this organisation she called SCUM as an acronym, the Society for 
for cutting up men. So <laughs> when you say quite, you yeah, know, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. It's fairly radical. It's yeah. It's sort of like the ISIS of <laughs> feminism. There's no yeah. no room for negotiation about. And this is all Andy Warhol's fault then. So she may not. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't think it was his fault. To be fair to him, I think it was. I think anyone presented with up your ass would, <laughs> yeah. would have heard the same thing. So, well, yeah. so um, it was actually published, I think, a couple of years ago. Oh, right. Okay. So we'll have a look. Yeah. We could do some readings. <laughs> yeah, and just yeah. see where this came from. Yeah. But in her manifesto for SCOM, aside from cutting up men, uh, she uses a great phrase where she, she, says, she says that men are broken in terms of they are incomplete female chromosomes, and so therefore they are emotional cripples they are effectively you know incomplete human beings and it's women who are complete human beings and men are the sort of runts of the human litter so so we thought well let's let's own that let's reclaim yeah <laughs> it's, a, it's a title for this podcast yeah, and this is often something that's thrown at men you know that they're they're emo- they have low emotional intelligence as well that they mm. they this is perhaps perhaps feeds into this idea of men not talking about mental health issues and things that they have low, they don't really empathise very well. Or Yeah. So. It's a, it's a, it's the right title, isn't it? Yeah. Um, by the way, yeah. I'll throw this in, it may not make the cut, but okay. um, I was listening to the jams running on the spot recently yeah. by a uh, complete coincidence and right. it has, a, it has a line in it is we are the next generation of emotional cripples. Ah, right. Now I wouldn't be surprised if Paul Weller yeah. knew that sort of being the 60s. Yeah. So anyway, that's where the title comes from, mm-hmm. and um, as I say, we're reclaiming it. Um, the word "cripple" is a little bit contentious. I don't think we've used it since 1973 <laughs> to, to describe someone who yeah, has a physical disability. <laughs> but but we're we're all right with it. We don't apologise for that. No, yeah, in, in um, context, I think it, I think it works. There's a certain irony to it. Yeah. Um, so if you want to go and look up a little bit more about. Ms. Solanus, and uh, she died quite young, actually. And mm. have a look at up your ass. Obviously, Andy and I are, you know, we're talking about what we think about, but we really want to know what you think about as well. So you can contact us on an email, contact at emotionalcripples.com. I'll say that again. Contact at emotionalcripples.com. Can you say it one more time? Right? Yeah. Contact <laughs> at... <laughs> You like it? Yeah. Contact at emotionalcripples.com. And there's a Twitter... What was it again? Sorry. Go on, sorry. <laughs> that address again. Go on, go on. And, <laughs> and then the Twitter one is, it is at emcripples. Uh, emcripples. So, yeah, feel free to fire anything you want at us. We can take it. Um, but ideally, <laughs> questions, yeah. Yeah. thoughts... Um, Feedback. Feedback, just, yeah. Just anything that... Anything that occurs, really. Because yeah. um, we... I mean, abuse, obviously, just... Maybe temper that a bit, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you feel the need to, yeah, to then, do it... Then I suppose we... Go for it. We'll but, take it on the chin. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, ideally, it's unlikely that if you say, you know, we hate you... Fuck you. It'll get onto the podcast. Yeah. We'll, we'll probably filter that out. Yeah. It'd be yeah. much more useful if you said something that we could kind of work yeah. with. Contact at emotionalcripples.com and at emcripples on Twitter. E-M, M for mouse. Not, it doesn't stand for mouse. No. It's, it's, a, a, it's a shortened version of emotional cripples because yes. Twitter wouldn't let us do the full version. We thought we'd kick things off by laying ourselves bare. Um, we're not naked <laughs> as we do this, but I mean, that's probably... <laughs> 
by letting you know a bit about who we are and a few words on our own struggles with mental health, a few people might sort of worry about this and think we should keep it anonymous. But uh, it's like that, I think it was Marilyn Monroe, maybe misattributed, where she said, if you can't accept me at my worst, you don't deserve me at my best, which is quite good. So he's sort of trying to get, uh, not because we want to feel better about unburdening, but because we want you to understand why we're doing this and yeah. you know a bit about who we are really we've asked you to get in touch and share your own experiences so mm. we thought we kind of we kind of do it and we should practice what we preach yeah go there first so to start with um i'm going to immediately deflect this onto tim yeah it's funny because i've agonized over this a little bit and i've realized in the course of thinking about it and talking about it that um for me it wasn't immediately obvious what it was that triggered mental health in fact i didn't connect it to anything Mm -hmm. but reflecting back there was a a particularly traumatic time that I had in my teens when I was 19 um I was living in London um it's quite a stable time isn't it for everyone exactly (laughs) it's not it's not the ideal time (laughs) to be uh to be going through any traumas but my uh yeah exactly and and um I was uh my best friend died at that time he was he was the same age um we'd been to school together I was actually living with his sister we were uh, a couple Mm. Um, she had a breakdown and the whole thing was very traumatic. Um, I, what happened to your, to your best friend? Yeah, well, he died because he had a, a brain hemorrhage. He was coming mm. back from college, um, on the train collapsed, um, in the station. Obviously they rushed him to hospital. He was in a coma. We went mm. to visit him in the hospital, hoping he'd pull through. So there was that, all that kind of drama. So it was a total shock. of Total shock. Thing, yeah. Never got to say goodbye. <clears throat> really horrible situation mm. and then following that the breakdown of my girlfriend was really traumatic as well and I don't want to go into too much of it because she's still around and you know but that got really really desperate right uh, she went into a mental institution I was left alone in my flat in London my response was to go raving right yeah so <laughs> Um, so you thought, let's have a dance. I didn't think let's go that. for a dance. A mate of mine did. He said, um, you look really glum, Tim. Cheer up. I'll tell you what's good. This this uh, night down heaven. He said, cheer up. It may, it may never happen. Yeah, and it you went, really It had. fucking has, mate. About <laughs> five things have happened. I need to... Yeah. There was yeah. no there was no shoulder to cry on, unfortunately. So I ended up um, using hedonism as an escape route, which yeah. is why I think that escaped me. As a, I literally did that, and for the next two or three years, I was raving all the time. So right. now, what, what's interesting, I think, about this is that the the distraction thing, because I think we'll probably this is a theme we'll keep coming back to because yeah, because I recognise this as a, a distraction to if you have mm. lots of you know voices or worries or anxieties or you know, things going on, things swirling around your head, then I think a lot of people will recognise the idea of trying to quiet those voices or the anxiety by distracting themselves with... with, And a lot of people distract themselves in in different ways. Some people Mm. might drink, take drugs, go raving, as you did. And a lot of other people might find climb mountains or something, I don't know. But there's some way to sort of distract themselves. Not actually confront it. Yeah. Um, Which... To some extent, it took me years to actually get into a situation. Years later, when I went into uh, psychotherapy sessions, mm. when I actually started talking about it, but it was a lot longer away. So I, yeah, as I said, that was something that got unearthed. Even when I went on psychotherapy sessions, it wasn't the first thing that came up. Right. Uh, it was. It was something that came up after a bit of digging. Yeah. So it's you know I can't be sure that that's what later triggered depression in me. Can, can I ask a quite a delicate question at this point? Please do. 
Were there drugs involved? When there you were. were you yeah. Raving? When I was raving, yeah. Well, how could there not be? Right. <laughs> You've been raving, right? Yeah. Uh, it's um. Yeah. Yeah. Now I was I was um. What was I? Larging it. I think right. was the, the phrase yeah. used in the nineties. There was some. De- there was a degree of largeness involved. <laughs> there was. Yeah. <laughs> it was constant. It was pretty much two or three years of that. Right. Um, okay. On a regular basis. So I um. Okay. I've got to say that wasn't very helpful in retrospect. At the time, it was it was an escape valve that right. that really. Um, but yeah. But what, the the I, question don't really recommend that to anyone. The question really is where how does it come to to a point where you are distracting yourself, um, and when does that become toxic? Is a question, isn't it? Because for a lot of people, self medication is the is the phrase, isn't it? This is right. you normally you start you you muffle it all by. Mm. whatever it might be usually some sort of substance but you know when do you realize did you did you get to a point where you thought this is too much no I never I never overdid it I don't think because I was um I was in a crew you know I ended up with a gang of mm. people not not in a you know nasty way but a group of friends it sounds who... like you're sort of breakdown <laughs> 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 the, the uh the, the group of friends like you get, you have you know when you go raving and they were great yeah. friends they were good supportive like posse. friends a posse, yeah, yeah that's yeah. what, yeah, that's it. Uh, and but they were they were in it for the fun. They weren't on an escape trip. Right. Some of them were overdoing it way more than me. So did you not feel that, <laughs> that you were sort of along for the ride and and? I just got lost in it actually, right. and I made really good friends at the time. In some ways, I don't regret that period so the, of my life. So the question really is: did it, did it did it help? You know, did you did mm. you come through that, or was it just a way of sort of kicking it into the I think long it was, grass? Exactly. Kind of yeah. In retrospect, I wish I'd confronted the issues then. Yeah. I'm not saying I wish I hadn't gone raving because that is a great deal of fun. Mm. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But I do wish I confronted the issues straight away instead so of I, run away from them. So at the time, given from the male perspective, mm. given that you were in that situation where your your girlfriend was suffering a lot mm. because of what happened, was there any kind of opportunity? Did you remember feeling, well, I can't really talk about this. It's it's not what men do, and, and you know, I, I just need to find a way to yeah. To sort of keep it, to secretly deal with it. It was, it was even more unconscious than that. I didn't even think about talking to anyone about it. Right. Like nobody, it didn't occur to me to talk to anyone about it. Right. And then, yeah. But did no one come to you and say, how do you feel about this? Are you okay? You know. People may have done. Yeah. I don't I don't know if I responded in any way, if they did. I, yeah, did I'm saying that, any... like, I literally can't remember. I mean, my brother was very supportive mm. um, at that time and he was... But but I think I ignored I I you know literally switched from one group of friends to another and went out mm. raving. Right. Feels like a bit of therapy now actually. Yeah. Well, I'll only do my because best, but I'm no, not thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing a good job. Yeah. No, I just I just mean you know I in some ways I still feel like I haven't tackled that time. It was really really mm. you know I'm welling up as I'm thinking about it. But mm. but um, so it feels like the natural way to connect yeah. depression. Yeah. I'm also I should say. Um, Having read the Matt Hay book, which you're yeah, we'll talk about later. Yeah, the it doesn't need to be connected to something, does it? Sometimes depression isn't connected to something, so it's very hard to know whether you're being triggered by something or whether you're just experiencing yeah an illness. You know, well, I think it is an illness. Yeah, I think it it is a, that is a problem. I think what you're talking about really is almost like a sort of PTSD, aren't you? Where you went through a really tra- traumatic situation. And you tried to um, mitigate it in in quite a, an intense an intense way by sort of you know trying to make it a background thing rather than a foreground thing. Right. So you know you fill the foreground with all the 
the lights and the noise and the music and the drugs and the people. And the driving around the M25. And driving around the M25. And all, yeah. of, all of that becomes the centre of your world, become, dominates you know, your, your, your perspective. And then you can you can shovel this other stuff onto the, you know how you feel about your your mm. friend and and everything onto the into the back into the background. So so yeah, it does I mean, sound it, like even now it it it's hard for me to admit that that was a traumatic incident. Mm. I I just feel like I don't want to let that be something that mm. affected me that way. So do you, know do you feel I mean? do you feel guilty that you kind of um, yeah that you did that? You, yeah, it's loads of guilt. And yeah. I mean, you know, I'm sure I could have acted more responsibly and. Mm. For my girlfriend, the people around me, myself. Mm. Um, you were nineteen, though, weren't you? To be fair, yeah, it's not, it's not a particularly mature no. age to be. I mean, there were lots of very, obviously, very mature and worldly nineteen-year-olds around. It's not, but, yeah. but it's not typically a nineteen-year-old male. Isn't the most sort of? It's the wasn't it that Philip Larkin quote when he says the strength and pain of being young yeah. and you know you've got this this mix of those two things this bulletproofness yeah. but also this yeah. yeah and you don't you can't really um you know you've got that sort of that pain that vulnerability but you've also got this feeling that you're invincible so it's yeah. a strange mix isn't it and yeah that sounds to me like a bit of what was going on there yeah. it does yeah yeah it's been it's been interesting talking about it again but mm. it's it seems for sure that it's connected with later feelings of anxiety depression and all the rest of what i'm feeling you know i've been feeling since then Mm. but um i now um have various treatments well i take i take citalopram which is um uh an ssrt isn't it that's That's right yeah Yeah. which um which helps but it's very very subtle selective selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors thank you yes that's right i wouldn't have what that means is for people who don't know I think is that what that means is that your your serotonin levels are reduced mm. aren't they and the, yeah. and the drugs it's kind of they're just all variants of I mean Prozac is just a just a trade name isn't it yeah Citalopram by the way is spelled with a C C-I-T-A-L-O-P-R-A-M yeah so when you when you started to take that do you did you did you notice there was a kind of very gradually yeah Yeah. it wasn't like a massive bang you're suddenly flying yeah um which is what i was hoping for yeah (laughs) yeah um no it's more of a subtle thing so over a few weeks i started to feel that you know the gloom that was literally over me all the time yeah lifted a little and suddenly you get this glimpse it's a really weird feeling actually because you suddenly think oh yeah this is like what normal life's supposed to be like do you know Mm. what i mean um shit i've forgotten yeah Uh, it's more like that than a sort of sudden like crazy yeah, happiness. So ultimately, I mean, that's, that's sort of what we're talking about, isn't it? A lot of people mm. are going around with mental health, with undiagnosed conditions and undiagnosed traumas, mm. and and all these things, and they just yeah. basically model through. Yeah. And something there's some sort of a tipping point, or there's it becomes too much. Definitely, and they, they can't. They can no longer, you know, shoulder that. No. And and for me, that feels to me is what happens when people have mental health crises they're, they're going around with all the stuff that they haven't really dealt with or, dealt with yeah. or, or confronted in any way and something in the real world you know pushes them over mm. over into a kind of crisis yeah it wasn't many years later for me but I, I do think that that whole feeling of dealing with it by suppressing it can lead to this habit of mind which is depression which can make you forget sometimes that right you're actually experiencing something really um, negative. Okay. See, so I've got, for me, I had, uh, I think, a bit more childhood with me. 
Right. Yeah, because I had a quite a poor childhood. I had a situation where I lived with my grandmother and I didn't really know, I didn't really get understand what was going on. It was quite a poor, it was a slum technically where we lived. Really? So we really in full Yorkshire territory, yeah. Where it was kind of, you know, outside toilet sort of. Um, yeah, yeah. And quite an unpleasant environment to grow up in, really. I assume my mum was sort of out working and I didn't really pick up on that. But what really happened, I think what what triggered things for me is that um, my father, I think it was kind of a one-night stand. My mum had me when she was 20. And so she was, you know, she was living a, a life. She's quite young. And my biological father sort of disappeared and didn't wasn't interested. And I conflated, somewhere along the way, conflated my stepdad, who my mum met later, with my real father. So I didn't really get, I didn't really connect right. that this wasn't my real father. So he came more on the scene, they got married, and then there was two stepsisters from obviously his previous relationship. But for some reason, I just constantly, I just sort of assumed that he'd gone away somewhere and come back, and this was my real father. Right, And yeah. something just never, no one ever really explained it. And then what happened was when I was about 17, a great time for this kind of thing to happen to you. Yeah. Um, my mum said, showed me the obituary of my dad in the paper. Mm-hmm. So she said, oh, look, here's your, this is your real dad, you know, he's, he's dead. And I was like, well, but he's upstairs, you know, so... Yeah. so well, that must have been traumatic. Yeah, so the therapists love this. Whenever okay. I've spoken to the therapists, they yeah. can see him furiously writing down at this point. <laughs> and um, from that, as a, from 17, somebody saying, effectively the person you think your dad is, uh, isn't your dad and your dad is dead there's a double whammy <sighs> was a real trick really difficult to um and you must have felt surely that um why didn't they tell me when he was alive so I could have yeah all so there's a bit of that but now i understand the good intentions the old rotel right. yeah play with good intentions thing mm. they just thought he doesn't need to know yet and then eventually, it's, too eventually it's too late yeah and so they think why should we bring it up now he seems perfectly fine and then and they assumed that i knew i think at some point right so a lot of guilt yeah. around them and then I think what happened from that was I just started to get a sense that I spun off in lots of, you know, risky behaviour kind of mm-hmm. directions. And then I started to get a sense that anything could change at any moment. That kind of, that, that anxiety of feeling that oh, right. things aren't as they seem, you know, what's, yeah. what's, um, what's real and what isn't real. So, yeah, it was more about... And you live with that since. Yeah, so it's, right. it's more about this, this idea that I think that's defined my adult years thinking how how sincere are people are can i trust them yeah is something gonna change Has somebody not told me something yeah and i think I, I i think i would probably pinpoint that as a kind of uh, a sort of pivotal moment oh, sure that kicked off you know something something yeah. and i think it probably manifested as a kind of a depression or a kind of an anxiety that has carried through and i have seen quite a few therapists i saw when i was thinking about 18 and i saw a psychiatrist and he was mm. and again it's almost like, you know, when you go to the doctor yeah. and the doctor examines you and then mm. they go, hang on a minute, and they bring the student in. <laughs> you know there's a problem. <laughs> it says that secretary cancel my appointments yeah. for the answer. Yeah. You know, you know, you, it's a bit worried. Yeah. They go, oh, interesting. Do you mind if I bring Janet in or something? And she comes in and goes, what's this going is on? The one Just I was stand there. This is really interesting. Yeah. You, you know that's a worry. Then, I, like I say, whenever I get to that point, if, if I, I whine about my poor childhood and then I say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, when I was 17, and they perk up and they start furiously writing. Yeah. And so I assume that's because it sort of feels like the beginning of where you would have chronic, I don't know, trust issues or, or issues yeah. about yeah. maybe, not so much abandonment, but maybe the idea that things things could just change at any moment. 
whenever therapists say to me, how do you feel about your real father abandoning you? Yeah. And I just think, I don't think he did really. I think it was more of a, he didn't want to be a father at that time. It wasn't like, he had to look at me and went, I don't fancy that. <laughs> <laughs> he never, just, uh, yeah. yeah, he never put that in writing. <laughs> yeah. He um, never went, oh, let's have a son. What have you got? Oh, no. I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> that would be devastating. Yeah, that, but... <laughs> that, that, that would be a bit obsessive. But generally speaking, I think there were probably, from what I know about it at the time, it was a kind of 19, 19-year-olds one-night stand. And then, yeah. You can imagine what that's like. Yeah, and understandably, the yeah. in the sort of whatever early seventies, you would go forget it. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not, I'm I'm not for that yet. Yeah. yeah. So, so. Um, and do you find that like, you've seen a lot of therapists or like that? Yeah. They always focus on the father thing. There's no. There's you know. To they the love detriment. it. Yeah. So is that, does that mean that that's got too much attention, or do you think that's that is the right trigger? I mean, it's a strange thing, isn't it? I don't. I think I've probably, as you say, anxiety and depression are very similar. Mm. But I'd say I started taking sertraline. Because really, it was, a, it was more about anxiety in terms of trying to um, sort of function yeah. in, in, a, in a kind of, in the world where you had to sort of put that aside mm. and sort of get on with things. So, you know, just sort of get on with the world, get on with stuff. And I think... I know, me too. I, so, I, even now I do. Yeah. When I've been to therapists, it's, it's been more about... Um, you know, nothing, nothing suicidal. But when I've been mm. to therapist, it's been that point where I've sort of run out of ideas about how to manage how it. to kind yeah. of manage it. It gets to gets quite difficult. Sort of comes in waves where yeah, it's like a, it's like a, if you've had cancer and you're in a period of remission, you know mm. it might come back. You know, yeah. you know you're yeah. not you're not definitely clear. No, so you might have a good a good period, but then mm. you, you shouldn't get too complacent. I think yeah. it's fine because yeah. then I would just have. You know, days where I just didn't feel like myself. It mm. would be so sort of um, so severe, and so, and I think it probably it probably does come back down to that. It's fair enough for therapists to kind of focus on that as a kind of yeah. No, it, it sticks out, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. But but generally speaking, I think mm. that mainly it's been CBT that's kind of helped rather than anything you know, yeah. deeper. Or I assume I assume yeah. CBT feels like a little bit of a sort of um a light touch yeah well i liked about cbt and it introduced it go, it flows quite well onto nlp which i'll talk about another time and stoicism yeah yeah is that you you take responsibility for the action you're going to do to come out of it so you look for the trigger don't you as i recall i haven't done it for a while yeah. but you look for the triggers to the thought processes that's going to lead to anxiety or depression yeah and then you think through how you're going to get out of it is that is that something like that i remember filling in a chart that's what i didn't like about it i used to have lots of charts yeah for cbt where i'd have to go this was the trigger and then yeah they gave me homework a lot as well yeah and, a lot um, of homework i didn't really yeah. like that yeah but um but yeah i think i think it's on a good level of rather than i mean the thing that i will say about nlp and cbt is that it's really anti-psychotherapy yeah and um what they say is that if you pay, if you're paying someone to talk about your problem all the time it's never going to go away yeah. You know, the worst thing you can do yeah. is go, why do you have that? Well, I think it's because of this thing. And, and you end up spending like a year talking about your father and what he did to you and or what he mm. didn't do to you. And, and suddenly, actually, that's not the way towards recovery. Yeah, That's just really indulging the issue and actually probably making it worse. Yeah, see, I think that I think the idea of recovery is probably is a bit of a problem as well for me. The idea that you'll yeah. get to the promised land. Yeah, and, I kind um, of I agree, yeah. And I think, as we mentioned Stoicism, I think Stoicism... It's probably the closest I'll, I'll ever get to a religion. You know, I don't really have, I have no 
you know, religious faith, but I think mm. Stoicism is yeah. something that I imagine, the way I feel about Stoicism is the way I imagine people must feel about a religious faith and that it's mm. something that underpins their their actions or the way they try to respond to things. Yeah. And like a moral, I suppose if you're religious, you have a moral framework, but some, something about the good sense Stoicism mm. that kind of seems to... Yeah, seems well, absolutely. Yeah. And one of the things that NLP gets from that is that if you ever feel anything negative, mm. instead of starting the spiral towards like, oh, why am I feeling like this? Oh, I'm so shit. I always feel like you, the first thing you think is, what do I want instead of this? Right. So yeah. a bit like stoicism. So so NLP is, what do you want instead? If somebody comes to you with a problem, you don't start analysing the problem like psychotherapists go and go, well, why is that? And what caused that ten yeah. years ago? You go, what do you want instead of this feeling? So it's and how are you going to get forward? Yeah. Yeah. And I like that is has been a really enabling thing for me. Mm. Um, but it, and CBT works in a similar way, doesn't it? Yeah. And sto- Stoicism, I mean, we keep mentioning it, but... Mm. Yeah, I mean, Stoicism is kind of misunderstood, but, you know, we'll, I'm sure we'll get into it in future episodes. But yeah. st- effectively, Stoicism is all about um, you You can choose to the way you respond to something. You you know, you yeah. have mind, you have the control over how you respond to something. And you can lay conditions to help yourself respond in a healthy way rather than an unhealthy way. Yeah. You can recognise triggers and those kind of things. It's like an agency that you have to, yeah, to be responsible for your... So I think stoicism and CBT are very, very connected. And It's funny though, because we we know what, you and I both know what we're talking about. Yeah. We've said this earlier, not on the podcast, but that when you talk to people and they think depression is just being a different level of sadness. But, like, I only yesterday I was in this state of anxiety, and it yeah. is, it's, like, for me, it is, I can't do anything. I'm, I'm overwhelmed. I have to sit down or lie yeah. down. And I still get that, and that's a regular thing. Well, overwhelming feeling is, I think, again, this is this is going to be a recurring theme because yeah. it's it's kind of like we, we, we are stone-age brains, don't we? So yeah. we have stone-age brains in a very complex yeah, we're uh, not ready for this one. We're not ready. You know, the Stonehenge brains are basically they have what, four or five things they need to worry about. Yeah. Where's the food coming from? Where's the threat? Uh, you, you know, there's partner. very, very limited things to worry about. Yeah. I mean, I'm imagining a Flintstones scenario. Yeah, I'm seeing that as well. But generally speaking, if you were living in that time, you weren't thinking, oh, for fuck's sake, the Wi-Fi is not very good here. Or, or have I got enough in my pension? Yeah. Yeah. yeah or... There's yeah. just thousands of things. Things that overwhelm you. Yeah. yeah. Thousands, if you're gonna if you're gonna be anxious about something now, then you've sort mm. of a choice, aren't you? Both. Yeah. But yeah. and your brain is not ready for that kind of choice, it's not ready for that kind of oppression. Well that that leads to a theme I wonder if we'll touch on, which is the the way the modern world is impacted on yeah. by one, I mean, you know, yeah. the digital age, because there's lots of talk of things like well, the social media, yeah. you know, iPhones that they have impacted on our well being. But I think it just translates. Anxiety just finds its yeah. You know, it's quite it's what its focus. Yeah, yeah. It will it will find something and mm. if it's in there. And I and so my my idea with therapy is if I can if I could find some form of therapy that means I accept it as something that's always going to be right around. Yeah, I I can prevent it from gathering too gathering too much in one field and, and yeah something compulsive. So whether that's health or worries about external things or all kinds mm. of stuff. So, so yeah, and um, so really, yeah. So there we are. I mean, I think that's probably more than enough. That's more than <laughs> enough. Yeah. So we're, so we are. Uh, that's who we are, and mm. we're going to be we're going to be moving on to talking to other guests hopefully through the series. And 
Um, we're going to have each episode, you're not going to have to hear us going about ourselves like this every episode. What we're going to do is to have something specifically how you know how things are going that week briefly yeah and um and then we'll move on to the rest of the show now for the bit where we talk to a guest someone related to male mental health uh, either a practitioner or perhaps someone in the public eye who's been open about their own mental health we call it talking therapy no that's good <laughs> or perhaps um Men, men talk, mental, like mental with a K. Forget that. Um, it's the guest spot. And we touched on CBT, cognitive behaviour therapy, earlier. And we're delighted to welcome our first guest, Ali Bins, who is a CBT practitioner. Now, we're doing this over Skype, so there are one or two weird noises, um, a little bit of interference, I think. But generally, you can hear what's being said, and we'll get better at that. It's just a pilot. Give it a chance. So, Ali, welcome to the show. And if you could start by just saying who you are, what you do, and how you came to be doing it. Okay. I work as a CBT therapist in Bath, and I work with all kinds of clients with a wide range of problems from anxiety to depression, health anxiety, social anxiety, uh, problems with confidence, self-esteem, a whole mixture of things, really. I work for myself. I retrained about three years ago after working in publishing. And I really wanted to do something along these lines because CBT's helped me in the past. And okay. I've always kind of felt that, you know, I'd really like to be able to share some of that and help other people with that yeah. and help them through their kind of difficult experiences too. Right, and what's... Tim and I have, sp- have spoken about this and um, just trying to work out exactly what CBT is. And there's lots of different answers to that question, it seems. So um, I think CBT is best explained by a quote from Epictetus, who is a Stoic philosopher. Mm. And um, obviously he was sort of hanging about about 2,000 years. <laughs> he was knocking about. <laughs> He was just being, just being all Greek. Yeah. Yeah. So this quote is, um, men are disturbed not by things, but by the views which they take of things. Right. So I think for me, that's kind of the heart of CBT. Sexist. Hmm? Sexist as well. Oh, well. Actually, he's using that word to encompass all of mankind. Well, you take take his point. You know, it it was a different era. (laughs) Yeah, they, they weren't quite so concerned with that yeah. in those days, I suppose. So they're concerned. So what he's saying there is, it's not the actual events that are the problem. It's not the things that happen to you. It's your response to them. It's how you react to them. Yeah, and I think um, you know, it's not trying to gloss over the fact that you know life has adversity, mm. but it's accepting that even in adversity. Um, we have the potential to be able to make things worse for ourselves by the way we think about things. Mm. So we believe the reverse is true, that if we're able to sort of look at our thoughts and manage our thoughts maybe in a different way, then we might be able to alleviate some of that sort of inevitable suffering that we might experience yeah, in circumstances. Yeah, it's that old, um, yeah, pain is, inevit- pain is inevitable, suffering is optional, and that's kind of this, what's, what underpins stoicism, isn't it, and what underpins what underpins CBT. So CBT and stoicism 
I kind of I've sort of stumbled across this accidentally because I read a great book on Stoicism called the the Daily Stoic last year, which was really good because it gives you a page. We'll we'll put this in the show notes. It gives you a, yeah every day of the year a kind of a, a sort of rumination on an on an element facet of Stoicism, and usually pretty everyday stuff. You know, not just um, difficult translated old sort of Greek texts, but but it yeah. generally sort of tries to do it in the way that we live today. Because we touched on this earlier in the podcast where we talk about we've got Stone Age brains, but, you know, we've got to deal with thousands and thousands of potential anxieties. And Stoicism, I suppose, is a way, I guess, of maybe quietening a bit of that noise. Um, but generally, I mean, in terms of cognitive behaviour therapy, when you say it, sound, it does sound quite easy. I meant, When I mentioned this to somebody the other week, they said the problem with Stoicism is it's it's how you do that you can't how do you control how do you change the way that you respond to a situation how do you train yourself to change the way that you respond to a situation it's definitely not easy so because mm. you would be trying to change the thinking habits of long-standing you know mm. possibly a lifetime's worth um so you know each time you have a particular type of thought then you're creating a neural pathway and the more that neural pathway gets mm. worn the more embedded it is so in CBT, you're actually trying to create new ways of thinking, new mm. neural pathways. Sometimes in CBT, before people might change their behaviour, for example, mm. if people might want to change their behaviour in a in a social situation, they might want to sort of actually, before they go into that environment, they might want to spend time actually visualising themselves in that situation, thinking and acting in the way that they would like to. So you're already starting to sort of kickstart the process before you really tackle your fear. So you're sort of preparing. You know that you're going into a situation that's going to be stressful for you. So maybe you you struggle with social situations and you're thinking, oh, I'm going to go to a party tonight. And you know that you're preparing for that party and, and for it to be a pleasurable experience and not, you know, too anxious. You have to think to yourself before you go, you have to think, okay, I'm going to behave react in this way this is going to happen so you can't change what's going to happen at that party but you can perhaps predict the kind of situations that might occur that could cause you stress is that right yeah because you can't yes you can't control for that i mean that's part of the point is that people's reactions are unpredictable you can't mm. read other people's minds you can't account for what they might do mm. um, but by being able to sort of the way we kind of think about it in CBT, we kind of look at it as in vivo and in vitro. So in vivo is practicing the new skills in real life. Yeah. You might practice them in vitro. That might be in the therapy kind of room itself, or it might be just actually imagining the situations in your mind before going out into a real life situation, because that will help to sort of change those neural pathways we were talking about so generally when you when you when you try to kind of react in that way though you'll spend a year thinking about this problem that you know it was in my childhood or something then you just keep going over it and over it and over it and it's indulging it and um tim was saying earlier that one thing cbt doesn't have any truck with is psychotherapy in general in terms because it's a bit of a racket in that respect and that your cbt is quite practical is that right you know you get to a point where you think you've you've helped the other person and then you sort of send them on their merry way rather than trying to keep them there for years and years is that right yeah for sure and um i would say that you know we don't ignore the past in cbt 
Um, for some people might come along and yes, they might want to go over their history a little bit. It does depend on the nature of the problem. Mm. Um, but in CBT, the focus will always will always be coming back to you know our you know how has how has the past impacted perhaps on the way you're thinking now. How can we help you now? How can we move forwards? How can we help you better to manage your life going forwards? Right. Accepting the difficulties that you might have had, accepting what might have gone on in your past. It yeah. be, you know, anything for any person. So what is... It might be helpful to have a little chat about that, but it's not where the focus yeah. would be. So when it comes to men, what kind of problems, because, you know, we're trying to focus on male mental health just looking at the number of sort of across my clients for sure it's sort of clearer that less um men are sort of referring themselves for therapy i think i read somewhere recently that only a third of um people in therapy are male mm. which is you know quite surprising and a third surprising yes right so it's it's tipped very much in favor of the female population but in terms of what's perhaps specific to the male population. Um, I suppose there are a lot of cultural expectations on men, such as perhaps being the main breadwinner, being the protector or the strong one. Yeah. Um, sort of certain cultural and social ideas about how men ought to be. Those can cause problems, especially if they don't, you know, if particular guys don't fit in with that stereotype of how men are kind of supposed to be. Um, also, I think um, there's a, possibly a big problem with men admitting vulnerability, mm-hmm. whether that's among their peers or their family. Um, and I think, you know, that might be a big part of why men perhaps don't seek help and support. So when you're when you're um, working with men, do you find that do you find that they're a little bit resistant or they're, they're kind of they? you know, they take things on board quite easily or do you do sort of find that they're actually quite difficult to get get through to? Actually, what I found is that men take to CBT very well. Right. I don't know if it's because it's quite an attractive therapy to men because it's quite practical. Yeah, there's no, no bullshit maybe. Yeah, and also it kind of gives you kind of solutions yeah. to managing and handling emotions in a more healthy way. Hmm. I think some other types of therapies may have a kind of reputation for having to sort of sit there being vulnerable, yeah. crying a lot, being yeah. provoked to cry. Um, of course, crying is fine. It's <laughs> natural, normal, but perhaps, you know, that, that idea of some of other types of therapies may, may kind of, put people off yeah but he is offering something a bit more practical and and goal orientated as well yeah and there is that sense with men isn't it that they like to solve problems they like to have a problem that's solvable that they see as solvable 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 and um perhaps perhaps women are more open to sort of a long-term approach to something and, and men kind of just want to get their hands on it and fix it nice and quickly get their mates around and open the bonnet and have a look in, have a look inside. <laughs> and that is what you're doing with CBT. You're kind of yeah. teaching people to kind of look under the bonnet of your brain almost and kind of see what's in there. How does this work? Yeah. What can I do about it? How can I manage it? But as opposed to, as we say, you know, we're not going to be keep slagging off other, other approaches, but the, as opposed to something like, for example, psychoanalysis, which is a much more long-term 
uh, sort of deep dive into you know the murky sort of waters of the past and and things that may have turned you one way or another or influenced you you're thinking in one way or another and um, that's a much more long-term complex approach isn't it and um, so perhaps yeah so you know perhaps that could be something that's quite attractive to men about CBT each person we speak to we're trying to get get a bit of a takeaway that Mm -hmm. they can something that whoever's listening to this podcast now can maybe think um, I'm going to go away and try that you know just something practical yeah, I've got um, a nice little exercise that people can try at home. Um, it's an exercise called Five Senses. So it's an exercise that's useful if you find yourself worrying or kind of getting caught up in thoughts about the past or the future. Then it's a good way of helping to sort of focus your attention and bring it back to whatever you're doing mm. present moment. Are you going to do it on me? Do I have to do this now? <laughs> Uh, no, exactly. Okay, right. Is it something that you can just sort of note and take away and do it later, right? Yeah, I reckon okay. just kind of jot. It's easy enough to jot down and do later. Okay. So basically, um, the idea of the technique is that you use all of your five senses, um, your sound, sight, touch, smell and taste, to bring yourself into the present moment. So you take a few sl- slow, deep breaths just to begin and you start to become aware of your surroundings, your environment. First of all, you're going to ask yourself the question, what are five things I can see right now? And that might be, you know, a table, a sign on the wall, a person walking by. Then you're going to ask yourself, what are four things I can hear? You might have to tune in really carefully for that. Might be a clock, might be something passing by outside, might be something in the room. Next, what are three things I can feel? That might be your feet on the floor, might be the feeling of your trousers against your legs. You've got to think quite hard, what can you feel? Then ask, what are two things I can smell? So it gets harder as you go through. And finally, what is one thing that I can taste? Might be the taste of coffee, might be nothing at all. Um, just you've got to think through the answers to each of those questions quite slowly and just taking it in and hopefully that can sort of break you out of any kind of cycles of kind of unhelpful thinking great and when you say unhelpful thinking that's uh that's something i keep hearing quite a lot in terms of um uh, when we spoke a couple of weeks ago you you mentioned something that stuck in my mind about the, the difference between concern and anxiety which is a concern of something that's tangible, perhaps, um, or and as opposed to anxiety, which would you define anxiety as something as perhaps where concern has reached a point where it's unmanageable? Yes. So, I've, so there's quite a good a quite a good definition of anxiety is when you sort of put it this way. So, anxiety is when you have taken a threat, real or imagined and you have overestimated the nature of the threat, and you've also kind of combined that with your own underestimation of your own ability to cope with that threat. And that is a recipe for anxiety. Right. Okay, so thank you for that. That's a great technique for everyone to try. Um, And I think we'll wind it up. If you can let us know what your contact details are, if people are thinking 
She sounds good. I'll have, I'll have her as my therapist, please. <laughs> What's, are you are you taking clients at the moment? Yes, yes. I, well, my doors are always open. Welcome. Okay. So what are your details? <laughs> so um, my website is alibins.co.uk and my Twitter is at alibins. Okay. Thanks, Ali. We'll put all that in the show notes as well so people want to get in touch with you. Thanks for your time today. Okay, thanks, Andy. Okay, you have reached the section of the show called Media Share, and we're going to recommend something and one thing each, something to read, watch, consume, download, um, play with. Could be a film, TV, streaming show, anything. Something that is related to male mental health or yeah. perhaps could help with help with a mental health issue. Um, something that maybe features a strong, positive representation of male mental health in some way. Um, so Tim, what have you? Yeah, so I'm going to start with an app, which I've downloaded uh, for my iPhone. Uh, so iOS only at the moment. Yeah. Uh, it's called Moment, <laughs> and uh, there is an Android version coming. So yeah. Android listeners, the, the point of this app is actually related to something that we said earlier, which is that um, I don't know if there's any evidence for this, but there's a lot of talk that the modern digital lifestyle can contribute to anxiety and depression. Right. Now, I'm going to save any references to proof of that for the moment. But I certainly feel anecdotally that that is the case. My use can sometimes spiral too high. Moment tracks what how you use your phone. It also takes you through ways to um, manage it better. So um, I'm doing something at the moment within Moment called Phone Boot Camp, which uh, every day gives you a new task, like day one, put down your phone for 30 minutes. Um, probably the hardest one was on day three where I had to... Uh, to delete my most used app. That caused a, a moment of uh, uh, anxiety. But actually, delete well, your most used app. Yeah. It challenges you to go, what, what, you know, we've, because we, it looks at all your activity and says, you use this app too much, delete it. <laughs> right. It's pretty intense. But um, what was that? Facebook? No, it was, it was actually Flipboard. I don't know if you know Flipboard. Yeah. Some, it's a sort of magazine yeah. type thing where I was just constantly browsing. But it. that might not be a bad thing, though. Do you use it a lot? I did it anyway. When, what if you use Moment? A lot. Yeah, then it, yeah, it's meta, isn't it? Yeah, it gets too meta. I, it get, I mean, obviously, it gives you the choice. You don't have to do it. But I thought actually I would go with it, and it, it certainly helped. Um, right through to things like don't take it in the bedroom, you know, little tasks like that. And, and I also found it useful that it tracked how often I use certain apps, so I could see whether I was overusing it. It's trying. To, I'm currently. A, don't know if you know how often you pick up your phone, but I can tell from this that I use it three hours a day and I need to get that down to two hours a day. Wow. The, the point for me is it seems to be helping with some aspects of my anxiety, for sure. Um, and that sort of modern-day ADHD that you have where you think, oh, have I looked at Twitter recently? Or when, you know, that kind of thing does need managing. Wouldn't yeah. you agree? Yeah. We, we all know that there's a social ill in everyone looking at their phones too often. And I think that the, it's become... The thing that's annoying me at the moment is where you talk to somebody and they they have a look at their phone while they're talking to you. Yeah. They, they go, not there I'll just browse you. Facebook while I'm having this conversation, yeah. which seems rude to me. Yeah, it's, it's rude. It seems a little yeah. bit old-fashioned. Yeah, no, it's definitely rude. rude. It means they're absent. <laughs> but do you feel it contributes to... I don't think it means absent. Health? I think it means that they're sort of... Um, there's something about somebody deciding that you you're not worth... Their full, full attention. attention. Yeah. 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 There's something maybe that's a bit arrogant. Yeah. But yeah. but I think if you're having a conversation with somebody, then it seems should be something you focus on. Yeah, it just seems the polite thing to do to give them your full attention. Do you do you think 
that overuse of phones or any technology could contribute to ill mental health in any way, even yeah, in a marginal I, way? I suppose any compulsion, anything yeah. where you feel a compulsion. And they've, it's been described as an addiction when you yeah. have to look at it first thing in the morning. It, well, Simon Sinek said, if that is the case, then you're probably addicted to your phone. Yeah. So there, that, that in itself would be a, an unhealthy relationship with technology, perhaps. Yeah, if you think about someone like alcohol, people say they've been mm. addicted to drinking alcohol. Yeah. And then it's a compulsion. If you're, It's the same kind of compulsion that you cannot get by without looking at your phone. You can't get by without having a drink. Or yeah, yeah. Then it's surely in the same... It's um, certainly got a part the to play. The same ballpark, yeah. yeah, that you mm. you can't function mm. unless you... So, I mean, if you if you had a day where... If you had a day where you weren't allowed to look at your phone, mm. then... How I'm sure a lot of people would really struggle with that. Yeah. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's mm. a problem, it's a compulsion. No, and a I, level it's of hard a, to tell how much that plays into depression or anxiety. But for me, I do feel I want to get it under control. I do feel better having taken this course on moment. And yeah. it's a useful thing to do. So I'm, I'm highlighting that one. It's yeah. iOS only, but it's yeah. also going to be available on Android. Um, you can go and look at it on the web, in the moment.io. Um, okay, check it out. I've got a book. This book is called Reasons to Stay Alive by Matt Haig, who's um, about to release a new book later this year, I think, called uh, Notes from a Nervous Planet, which is all about anxiety. So we're hoping to get him on. Yeah. I'll be ruthlessly yeah. pestering him at some point. So what's good about this book is that it, it's um, it talks about his experience of depression, anxiety. This is reasons to be alive. Reasons to stay alive. Stay alive. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's about his. He used to live and work in Ibiza during the. This, you know, when the real kind of party years of Ibiza and the big yeah. uh, super clubs were just, it was this kind of hotbed of hedonism and debauchery and he used to be part, a part of that promotional scene. And so what's interesting about it was the way he begins the book of the moment, of his moment of crisis where he, he goes to a cliff edge mm. and, you know, pretty much literally stands on the edge of the cliff and contemplates throwing himself off. And um, It's really well written, that part, that's the I've read. Yeah. And so, and it's fascinating because uh, because of the honesty, because of the the fact that he's laying it bare. That's that's something that really comes out through the whole book. But it's also a really powerful um, a sort of antidote to all the things that he feels are contributing to to his condition, his mental health problems. If, as we've just been talking about with um, you know lots of compulsions to keep checking things, and society and society's view of things, and the way the way the world is set up, mm-hmm. and he has a really good way of looking at it and he says the world is increasingly designed to depress us and that happiness isn't very good for the economy. So mm. he says if we're happy with what we had, why would we need more? How do you sell an anti-aging moisturiser? You make somebody worry about ageing. How do you get people to vote for a political party? You make them worry about immigration, etc., etc. Yeah. So it's about the idea of... Um, Media. Yeah of, yeah, of making people unhappy, reminding them that they're unhappy about something that mm. is being monetized. Wow. It's a kind of, it's his way of saying, but don't despair, you know, all is not lost. And he does describe depression very well. He does. Yeah. And, and explains all the, all the kind of things we touched on earlier mm. about it being an existential yeah. problem. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a really, it's a really powerful response to something that he thought, would consume him, would, you know, end up ultimately, um, he'd end up losing his life over it. And mm. he, got, he got very close to, to that and managed to pull back. And so it's a kind of a recovery story, a survival story. 
yeah. and but written by somebody who who's a very good writer who's also has a kind of sense of good sense of narrative good sense of fiction a lot of these mm-hmm. a lot of books that you read self-help books they just read a little bit too academic for my taste they're a bit like journals a bit dry mm-hmm. the content's fine but they're not very consumable you know and this is the opposite this is something that um you'll probably read very quickly it's quite a, yeah. quite a short book Good, a nice size yeah. as well. I can't <laughs> tell because I, I've got it on my Kindle. And you oh, can right, tell okay. on the Kindle. You, you it's like a strange this. sort of height. It's yes. a little bit shorter than usual. Right. But, yeah, there's something about it. And I I noticed that I went, I was feeling unwell uh, last year and quite a lot of anxiety. And I went away to Lanzarote. And we'll come back to this because this is quite a theme. That right. I find Lanzarote a really relaxing place uh, because it's quiet. And mm. not in a kind of not in a physical sense. Mm. Um, it's conceptually very quiet because advertising is banned. Is it? There's no street advertising. There's no there's no buildings over I think two stories or something. Mm. And um, it's a fun, really interesting place. People dismiss it as just some sort of you know mm. stag stag weekend place or something. So everywhere you go, you don't see any advertising. You don't see people telling you what to buy, telling you what to watch, what to think, what to do. Oh, so I find it a really relaxing yeah, um, place that makes to me be. Want to go there. You know, you could you could go to the right place in Lanzarote and you wouldn't see any any chains, you wouldn't see anything. You just see quite a simple, sort right. of easy, sort of um, you know, very kind of quiet and calming kind of world. That sounds exactly what I need. Sometimes. So anyway, I, mm. I was feeling quite anxious, and so I had a few days there, and uh, I was writing something. Mm. But I took reasons to stay alive with me, and I'd already read it, and oh, okay. um, and I found that. Um, it's just one of those books that feels you can go back to a little bit of a companion. And as oh. I said, talking about stoicism, it must be mm. that feeling of someone who's deeply, you know, a, yeah. a Christian and they like to have a Bible with them or something. Yeah, yeah. It's all this wisdom in there. Yeah, there's a lot of wisdom in it. And yes, yeah, a very wise, mm. you know, funny, honest, mm. uh, often quite a harrowing book. And but at the end of Excellent. it, you really understand. You understand a lot more about what depression and anxiety is and mm. how. Even when you're at the bleakest moment, when you're well, as he was literally standing at the edge of a cliff, mm. there there is a way to, way to get back from that. Awesome. So yeah, thanks for listening, and it would be great if you could go to the iTunes store and leave us a review, some or feedback, a rating. or yeah. a rating, especially anything. if you liked it. Well, mainly if you liked it, really. Yeah, I mean, if you hated it, then it's not too it's not a big problem if you I'd, to leave some I'd feedback. They didn't. Yeah, but just sort of. Just, I just say two stars. Don't say I, oh, you know, I hate you or anything like that. Just try and tone it down. Yeah, you know, we let's, have got feelings. Civil. Yeah, but Keep no, it, we want to get this out there. We want people to hear this and hopefully join um, in the conversation. So that really helps if you can do that. We'd really appreciate. I think it's the algorithms. Yeah, the algorithms. It always is. Yeah, please leave some feedback. Really <laughs> reviews, good, please. Yeah, please. That's yeah. my version. Please, we we do. We would really appreciate that. Um, you know, we know this will get better. It will get tighter. We'll get. Mm. We'll get. We've we'll got guests on there. We're hopefully Stephen Fry will pop in at some point as as usual. Yeah. Um, so please, we we can only improve it if we hear from you. So please, yeah, give us some feedback. No, it's getting a bit desperate. <laughs> you can get in touch with us on the email contact at emotionalcripples.com or on the Twitter handle, E.M. Cripples. E.M. Cripples. At E.M. Cripples. That's the one. At E.M. Yeah, not at 
the word. No, the at the, sign. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the the at one sign. they use on Twitter all the time. Yeah, the one yeah. everyone knows about. We, do, we shouldn't waste at, time explaining. At, e, at EM Cripple. So we really like to hear your thoughts, however incisive or uh, brutal. Yeah. But also hopefully supportive. But or also, banal. Yeah, banal. Or, <laughs> or, yeah, yeah. Some of those banal thoughts is yeah. fine. <laughs> Shocking thoughts, also welcome. Yeah. And um, any insights, maybe you know somewhere closer to Lanzarote. It's just as good because I can't really afford to go there very often. Um, or anything that you want to talk about, we'd love to hear from you. Anything that's particularly in this episode, I guess, that the old thing is if you've been affected by the issues in this episode, that there must be, there might be a lot of people out there who have, um, we've touched on something that's touched a nerve with you. So, yeah. so let us know about it. We'll, you know, be discreet, be anonymous if you like. It's up to yeah. you. Let us know what, you, what how you want us to refer to you, and we'll. Should we say we default to anonymity unless you yeah. say that's not all right? So yeah, yeah, feel free to do that. Or you know, use a handle. Yeah, use strange. A, use a nickname, Luke Skywalker eight six three. Yeah, five or something. Use that one. Yeah, <laughs> <The>, uh, <laughs> and uh, hopefully we'll be reading some of those out in the next. Yeah, well, unless it's Mark Hamill. Yeah, because if Mark Hamill contacts us, then um, he better use something else. Yeah. Um, no, we're really looking forward to hearing from you and. You know, the whole spirit of this is really sharing. So we, we hope that by hearing our stories and other stories like it, you'll feel you'll feel that you're you're not you're not in this alone and that, you know, we can get over this together in some kind of yeah. way. Hippie. It, how are we gonna do that? We just is it gonna be a meeting? <laughs> yeah, we'll all meet, meet up at the end. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, oh yeah, so we say who we are. Oh yeah, so I'm Tim, uh, Tim Tucker. Yep, I'm and Andrew. I'm Andrew. I'm gonna say Andrew, not Andy actually. I see that again, that was messy. Emotional Cripples was devised and performed by Andrew Lowe and Tim Tucker. Designed by Stuart Bache. All music by The Weathermonger. If you have been affected by the issues in this podcast, uh, you can call the Samaritans in the UK on 116-123. Or if you're outside the UK and Ireland, check out befrienders.org. You'll find the link in the show notes. Thank you.